0: I'd like to welcome the hundreds of you that join us every Sunday online. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word and also our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho and also First Baptist Church in Kalispell, Montana, as well as the Hangar in Marion, Montana. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us today for our study of God's Word and we just uh, consider you part of our extended family and we are just so proud to be connected with you and so glad uh, that you're joining us. Now we're coming down the the home stretch of our series from the Gospel of John, uh, the book of John. And today we're going to look at the death of Jesus and kind of have Good Friday at the end of August. And then uh, next Sunday we're going to have the resurrection in September, Easter Sunday in September. And the title of our series has been Upside Down, How Jesus Reframes Everything, now, as we come to John chapter 19, I just want to back up and I want us to spend a few minutes looking at the forest, okay? And, and, and the big picture uh, from this passage. And then after we've done that, we're going to break it down verse by verse and look at the trees. And so I'd like to ask Dr. Carl Tony to come up. He's a professor of biblical studies at Hope International University. And he is kind of our scholar in residence. Uh, he's our scholar in residence. It's so great to have a Bible professor here as a part of our church family. Family as our scholar in residence. and it is just awesome sometimes to have him give us a deeper, uh, broader theological viewpoint and then uh, then I'll take it and break it down verse by verse uh, with regard to kind of the trees as we go through that. Let me just brag a moment uh, for Carl as he is coming from his Sunday school class and so I am vamping at this point uh, to stall and if somebody could search and bring our scholar in residence into us, that would be awesome. okay. So at any rate, let me just brag about Carl. Uh, the reason he's so smart is because he uh, went to Wheaton College, okay, like I did. And I graduated in 1978, and he graduated in 1998. And let me just tell you, Carl gets sick of me telling this story, but I always love to brag about him, is that he, um, when we were at Wheaton, when I was at Wheaton in the 1978, in the late 70s, our nickname for our athletic team was the Crusaders. We were the Wheaton Crusaders. And we always used to gripe about, that saying, what a stupid name for a team. A lot of Christian schools had that name. I mean, why name yourself after the low point in Christian history? I mean, why not the Wheaton College Inquisitors? Why not uh, the Wheaton College uh, Salem Witch Trial Judges, you know? And so it's kind of like, why pick our worst moment and make that our name? And so we griped about it, but we never did anything about it. But then when Carl came, yay, Carl! All right, And thank you, Pastor Greg, for, uh, did you have to tie him up and drag him out of his class there? Okay. Uh, when Carl came, I'm telling my story before you rather than after, you, so it worked out perfectly. Um, when Carl came, he mobilized a group of students to have a, a kind of a not a revolt on campus, but a, a loving rebellion on campus to change the name. And so, because of Carl's leadership and efforts, they changed it. And today, instead of being the Wheaton College Crusaders, it's the Wheaton College Thunder. Okay. So let's hear for Carl for. Uh, being as sensitive in that and uh, helping in that area. So, you are my hero because of that. You know, as an alumnus of Wheaton, you know, I love to say we're the Wheaton Thunder now rather than the Wheaton Crusader. So, our scholar in residence giving us an overview of John 19. Let's hear it for Dr. Carl. Tony!
1: Thank you. Well, thank you, Glenn. Uh, I guess I should be late more often so that I get great stories about me told. (laughs) Uh, but thank you, and uh, yeah, it's always a bad news when you're like, the senior pastor is waiting for you. <laughs> Get out of your Sunday school class. Um, but thank you, and thank you all for having me here this morning. It really is great to be able to be uh, part of this church community and to be able to be able to spend a little bit of time exploring a little more deeply John 19 and 20. When I think about the gospel, I, at the end of summer, I can't help but think of the beach, and when I think about the beach, like, really, it doesn't take much to go and enjoy the beach. Maybe a little sunscreen for me because I'm pretty pretty pale, a little bit of uh, umbrellas over my head. But I love the beach. My kids love the beach. We go out and play in the sand toys. But also, it's fun to go out and wade in the water a little bit and sometimes maybe go swimming or surfing or bodyboarding. Or for myself, I like to go sailing. Uh, just to get deeper and deeper into the water. And and as you go to the beach, you know, it requires a few different skill sets. If you want to go deeper in the water, you got to learn to swim. If you want to go fish, you got to learn to fish. But you really don't have to know anything just to get out and experience the beach. You just go out and you enjoy the beach. And what's great about the gospel is it really is a lot like the beach. It's so simple. It's just a matter of getting in the car and going to the beach, For the gospel, I love our church because every week we have in our bulletin, our PFB Weekly, the three simple steps that it takes to become a follower of Jesus. It's so simple. It's just getting in the car. In our bulletin, it's the ABCs. It doesn't get more simple than that, does it? And in our bulletin this week, it's on page five. First, we admit our condition before God. We admit the wrongdoing that we have in life. We admit the ways that we screw up. For me, again, beach… I was a four year old kid when I admitted my condition before God. I didn't have a lot of hang ups in my time. I was, you know, stealing toys from my sister, throwing milk on the floor, getting uh, upset at my parents because I wanted to stay up later, uh, and communicating that as any four year old does. But at the same time, my parents showed me the love of Christ, and they showed me that I had a great need for a Savior. And I was able to admit my condition before God. For some of us, as we get older, it gets harder sometimes to admit that condition because as we get older, we do things that are harder and harder. Bigger things get broken in our life. We break friendships. We break our marriages. We break our relationships with our kids. We break things that happen at our jobs, and we get full of all sorts of hurts and hang-ups in life, don't we? But the great thing about the gospel is it's simple. We admit our condition. Where else in the world can you go and just come as you are? Jesus doesn't want you to dress up, to look fancy, to be something you're not. Jesus wants to see you as you genuinely are, your strengths, your successes, as well as the weaknesses in your life. Admit our condition. But then we move on to the B. We believe that Jesus is God's only solution. And that's why we're studying John 19 and 20 this week and next week. We discover that God's solution was to send Jesus to die on a cross and to be risen again. As a means that we could have a right relationship with God, when we 're honest with God, He can be honest with us and to begin to present solutions to the problems that we have in our life it 's that simple, and then the C, we choose to follow Christ. We have to make a decision. We can look at our lives and say, "Yeah, my life is messed up. Yeah, God looks awesome, but we have to make a choice. We have to decide to follow Jesus it 's interesting. The word repentance in the New Testament is metanoeo, and we often think about repentance as, I need to turn away from my sin. I've got this problem in my life. I, I, keep, I keep lying. I keep getting angry. I keep being dishonest, and I, I, I'm sorry. And, and for us, it's a lot of, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that. Well, that's what we think repentance is. The word metanoeo means to turn around, to turn away from. And the idea of repentance is not just, I'm sorry, I'm going to turn away from my sin. It's not focusing, I did this bad thing, and now I'm going to do this thing, right, this other thing instead. Metaneo, to turn around, means I turn from my sin, and I turn around towards God. That's what repentance means. If we just turn away from our sin, we haven't repented. If we just say we're sorry, that's not repentance. That's not metaneo. Repentance is, I turn from my sin, and I turn towards God. I turn from my actions that have been going this direction, and I begin to follow Christ. And what's great is Christ promises that, yeah, we're going to keep turning back to our sins. There's things that we keep doing. But once we turn around for the first time, God holds our hand and is with us and is constantly pulling us back around and walking along with us in our walk with Him. Going to the beach, the gospel is simple. But we can learn so much more about our faith as we study and explore scriptures. And I love this morning sermon. You're going to love what Pastor Glenn's going to talk about the cross. I want to talk a little bit about the background of Jesus' crucifixion to get us a little deeper in the water. And the background of the crucifixion is the Passover. We discover with our Lord's Supper that we celebrate every week, and we're going to be celebrating it next week, that the Lord's Supper was a Passover meal. Jesus meets with his disciples and they eat together on the Passover. The Passover was a celebration of the Exodus. See, in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt and they were freed by God by Moses and the ten plagues. They moved from being slaves to being freed by God. This is such a powerful story that we see it in things like the movies of the Ten Commandments, the Prince of Egypt, and more recently, Gods and Kings. This great story that God could take people who were slaves, and nothing that they did earned it. God simply said, I want those people to be free, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to free them. And through the Exodus, God frees His people. The Passover meal was a meal to remember that. And one of the key components of the Exodus was the people had to sacrifice a Passover lamb for God to protect that household. Because the 10th plague in the Passover was a plague where God sent the angel of death to kill the firstborn son of the Egyptians. God did this because God considered Israel to be His firstborn children. And so God said, look, if you're going to hold my people hostage the price is your firstborn children. But God didn't leave it at that. He didn't say, I want to kill the Egyptians, and that's it. End of story. No, God gave everyone, including the Egyptians, an opportunity to protect themselves from that angel of death. The message was, if you don't want your child to die, kill a year-old lamb and put the blood on the doorposts, and that blood will protect you from the angel of death no matter what. The word Passover, we sometimes think of it as Passover like God skipped houses, but it's not about God skipping houses. That's not what the word Passover actually means. The word Passover, a shock, means protection. And the lamb was slaughtered to protect the household and to establish a covenant between God and that household, an eternal relationship between God and that household. And we fast forward to the time of the New Testament where we see Jesus celebrating this Passover meal and saying, remember the lamb? Well, now instead of that lamb that protected the Israelites, I want to tell you how I am the new lamb of God, and I come as a new sacrifice to offer protection for all people. This bread represents my body. This wine represents my blood. And when you do this in remembrance of me, you remember this great sacrifice that began the relationship between God and the Israelites, God's first great act of deliverance. What's cool in the Gospel of John is John 19, 14 is going to say that Jesus dies at the same time that the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. John presents Jesus as the new Passover lamb who has come to establish a new covenant, a new promise, a new relationship between God and his people— through Jesus's death. Jesus didn't die for your sins simply because God saw a sin problem in your life and wants to take care of it. It's not just turn away from the problem. Jesus died so that we would begin a new relationship with him, an eternal relationship with him. And Jesus, as a Passover sacrifice, establishes that eternal relationship. God loves you and I so much that he sent his son to die so we'd have an eternal relationship with him. But that's not the end of the story. The death of Jesus is only half of the story. It's like getting through a book and saying, well, that was pretty good, and putting it down. It's like watching a movie and turning it off if we only talk about the death of Jesus. The gospel story is complete with the resurrection. Jesus died so that he could be risen again. Jesus' death allowed him to submit to the powers of sin and death so that God could conquer sin and death. If Jesus had stayed in the grave, we would have no assurance that God had the power over sin. We'd have no assurance that God had the power over death because he died. Sure, it says that he paid the price, but how do we know that that price did any good? With the resurrection, we get historical proof of the promises of God that Jesus came not just to forgive us of our sins, but to conquer sin and death in our life and to give us hope and possibility. Whatever the problems that we have in our life, whether it's throwing milk on the wall or maybe harder problems at work that are things that are unbroken, uh, that are broken beyond repair, the resurrection gives a promise and hope that God can repair, can fix broken relationships. God gives an eternal yes with the resurrection. The resurrection is about promise, power, and hope. Now, last time I checked, we don't go to church on Friday. And Friday, Good Friday, is when Jesus died. We go to church on Sunday, today. What we're going to learn about next week is Sunday, the first day of the week, is when Jesus was resurrected. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. You may wonder, why am I here this day of the week instead of any other day of the week? Should I go to church on a different day of the week? Well, The Christian faith has gone to church on Sunday for almost 2,000 years to celebrate the resurrection, the power of God, God's ability to conquer sin and death. We don't go to church because we're celebrating the death of Jesus. We go to church because we're celebrating his new life and the new life he brings in our lives and the lives of others who we share the gospel with. We can get so we can have so much fun on the beach. We can go play in the sand. We can go swim in the waters. We can go water skiing. Uh, Jesus gives us this incredible opportunity through his death and resurrection to enjoy our relationship with God and to share that love with others through the power of the gospel. And by the
0: way, Carl, before you leave, just stand up here for a minute. Doesn't he look like a college professor? I mean, just look at that. And show him your Jesus socks. Show him your Jesus socks. There he's got his Jesus socks on. So this is a true uh, stereotypical. Um, uh, let's thank Carl one more time. That was great stuff. Thank you, Carl. And uh, let me do a commercial. And that is every Sunday, if you look on page 7 in your program, every Sunday uh, there are classes at all three hours with teachers just like Carl. We have fabulous teachers here at Purpose Church, and just like Carl, where you can go deeper into God's Word, and I would really encourage you maybe this September uh, to connect with one of those groups. And just because Carl's up here, let me give a little push for his. He's been doing a series on the religions of the world, world religions, uh, similar to a class that he might teach in college and at Hope University. And so he is starting next Sunday. He's starting Islam. And if there's one religion we would like to understand better, it is the religion of Islam. And he is starting that during this hour, uh, during 945, right second story, right through there in 201, I believe it is. And uh, Carl will be there at 945 for the weeks ahead studying uh, Islam. And so let me put in that little plug for that, but for a plug for all of our classes, because they all have awesome teachers, uh, just, just like Carl Tony. Well, now we come to John 19 and the price of our salvation? What did Jesus suffer for you? And I know this is going to be familiar material because once a year, usually around the Easter season, uh, this is what we study. But remember, Jesus said, we're going to share the Lord's Supper next Sunday. He said, do this in remembrance of me. He says you can't go over it too many times. You, we should constantly go over it so we never take for granted the price that was paid, that we do this in remembrance of him as a regular reminder of the price that he paid. Now John, who wrote the book of John, is an eyewitness to these events. And he points out nine things that Jesus suffered for you and for me. Number one, Jesus was flogged. It says in verse one, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Uh, You would be stripped naked. The whipping would be done with a cat-of-nine-tails whip. Uh, There were bits of metal balls that were embedded in it so that they would bruise your back. Uh, Chips of bone would pull the meat off of the person's back. They would flog you 39 times because they believed you would die at number 40. And so the Roman executioners were experts at torture to take you right to the brink of death and then hold back so they could keep you alive to torture you some more. Uh, Dr. Kayleen Schreier is, is part of the Department of Biology and Chemistry at Azusa Pacific University. Um, uh, she uh, says that the flogging leaves the skin of Jesus' back in long ribbons uh, as it's flayed there in his flogging. Then number two, Jesus was mocked. Verse two, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Uh, This was a common game with Roman soldiers. Historians tell us that they called it the king's game. And they would take a robe and put it on the criminal. Then they would take a crown, and it wasn't always of thorns like it was for Jesus, but they would put it on the criminal. And then they would strike and beat him. Uh, the verb, the Greek verb tense here, indicates that this happened repeatedly, again and again and again. Isaiah tells us that they pulled his beard out. It says that eventually Jesus was beaten uh, beyond uh, recognition. Um, and again, uh, Dr. Shire uh, says uh, that the thorns also caused damage to the nerve that supplies the face, causing intense pain uh, down his face and into his neck. And so his back would be an excruciating pain, his face would be an excruciating pain, his neck would have excruciating pain. Then, thirdly, John says that he was tried by a mob. Verse four. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, "Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him." When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, "Here." is the man. Uh, Pilate was hoping that the religious leaders would be satisfied if Jesus were flogged and then he could turn him free. It was very rare for a person to be both flogged and crucified. Usually it was one or the other. And so he thought that this would uh, satisfy their bloodthirst. But crucifixion is exactly uh, what these religious leaders wanted. It says in verse 6, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, 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 and Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, Pilate tried to convince the crowd that Jesus was, in, was innocent. Do you know if you put the whole story together over the four gospel accounts, you'll find that Pilate declared Jesus to be innocent seven different times. Seven times. He said that he was innocent, but this mob is in a frenzy, and so they just shout again and again, uh, crucify him. When Pilate heard this, that is, that he claimed to be the son of God, he was even more afraid, okay? And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? You know, Pilate's saying to him, don't you realize that your life is in my hands? As the Roman prefect, uh, Pontius Pilate, had enormous power in Israel. He could just snap his fingers, and he could single-handedly have anyone executed. And he had a reputation. Pilate had a reputation for cruelty and and for insensitivity and for uh, harshness. And so he says, don't you realize I have this power over you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, this would have scared Pilate, because he had absolute power in his territory. But he knew that there was somebody more powerful than him, and that was Caesar. And so any sense that he was uh, leading opposition or allowing opposition to Caesar would put his neck on the line. And so now he decides to be afraid of Caesar more than Jesus, the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat him down in the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is called Gabbatha. Uh, We'll put up there a picture of the fortress Antonia. And so in this fortress, Pilate stands before the mob with Jesus by his side. And here's verse 14 that Carl was talking about. And I'm telling you, you go through this story a thousand times and you always pick up something new. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. Isn't that amazing? As as Dr. Tony just says, Carl just said, that even as the lamb, the Passover lambs, all across Jerusalem are being slaughtered in preparation for the Passover In the same way, Jesus is going to hang on the cross and his life is going to be taken as well because it was the day of preparation, the day of the slaughter of the lambs, the Passover lambs, and the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that takes away the sin of the world. His life is being taken as well. He says it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. He says it sarcastically. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Next page of your study outline. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And every one of us have that same choice. Do we choose Jesus, the Son of God, or do we choose Caesar? Do we choose the God of this world or the Son of God? And every one of us have that same choice, and he had that same choice. Who are you going to fear? Who are you going to fear and respect, the Son of God or Caesar? This world or Jesus? And so he chooses to be more afraid of Caesar than he is the Son of God. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified, and so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. That sends a chill down my spine. These cruel men, these men expert in 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 torture and in execution, it says that the soldiers, uh, Pilate handed Jesus over to them, and these soldiers took charge of Jesus. Now, there are different church traditions and historical traditions as to what happened to Pilate. Uh, Some believe he committed suicide uh, not long after this. Others say that Pilate eventually became a Christian, uh, became a follower of Jesus. We really don't know what happened to Pilate. Uh, but we do know what now happens to Jesus. Uh, Jesus carries his cross. It says in verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And here you can see the pavement uh, where uh, Jesus walked. And and to do another commercial, if you ever want to go to Israel, Dr. Uh, Carl and, and Pastor Lisa, they lead regular trips to Israel and to the Holy Land. You can climb downstairs and see the actual pavement that Jesus walked on to get to the cross. Uh, The beam of the cross weighed between 30 and 40 pounds. And so Jesus is so weak by this time that he's unable to carry the cross the whole distance. And so Luke gives us another little detail here. It says, As the soldiers led him away, they see Simon the Cyrene of Cyrene, from Cyrene, who is on his way in from the country, and they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, we believe that this Simon is the same one that's talked about in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. And so he was actually a Nigerian. And so here you have the picture of this Nigerian um, uh, carrying the cross of Jesus before him. He eventually commits his life to Christ. He eventually becomes not only a leader in the church of Antioch, but also one of the preaching team, one of the teaching team, along with Paul and Barnabas and a couple of others uh, there at the church of Antioch. Uh, We believe that his sons eventually became leaders in the early church, and they're talked about at the end of Mark, Alexander and Rufus, and possibly it's the same one that's mentioned at the end of the book of Romans. And so this man that carries Jesus' cross eventually, we believe, commits his life to Christ. His sons become leaders in the church, and he becomes a leader in the church and a preacher and a teacher within the early church as well. They lead him to what's called the place of the skull or Golgotha, And here's what we believe is a possible site uh, for Golgotha. And in Latin, it is called Calvary. Golgotha, Calvary, is where uh, they eventually take him. And there, number five, Jesus was crucified. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, says, crucifixion is the most wretched of deaths. Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and the most horrible torture. Tacitus called it a torture only fit for slaves. A Roman citizen would never be crucified. It was for the slaves. It was for the lowest of society. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. He was executed in the manner of a slave. Uh, Verse 18, there they crucified him and with him two others. Now there were three crosses that were prepared that day. And the third cross in the middle was prepared for Barabbas. Uh, and Barabbas means a uh, son of his father. And so the father's son, Barabbas, that's who that cross was prepared for in between the two other criminals that were crucified that day. But Jesus took the place of Barabbas, uh, the father's son, and now the son of the heavenly father, God, takes our place, Barabbas's place, and our place. On the cross, in between two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Now, the Romans crucified many people. They had perfected crucifixion. Uh, They had professionals that their only job was to crucify people and to make it as painful as possible. So they threw the cross down on the ground and they threw Jesus on the cross. His open wounds on his back would have been reopened and filled with dirt. Then they would nail his wrist to the cross with a seven uh, to nine inch spike. Josephus again writes, the executioners out of rage and hatred amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures. So their idea of entertainment was to see if they could come up with new postures that would actually increase the torture and the agony of the person being crucified. Uh, The spikes would cause major nerve damage to the hand, that would cause continual agonizing pain up and down both of Jesus' arms. The cross would be picked up and dropped in a hole, and it would jolt the shoulder and the elbow out of place, and the arms would stretch a minimum of six inches longer than normal. So both the arms would stretch out at least six inches, maybe even more uh, than normal. Now begins a slow, painful method of death. You know, sometimes historians tell us it took nine days for a person to die on the cross. Now, John here doesn't give us a whole lot of details because the people that would be reading his gospel um, in the early church, they knew what crucifixion was. And so he didn't put a lot of details down there because his the people that would be reading it that he was writing to, uh, they, they would know what those details were. Verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, The king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Number six, Jesus was stripped. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. It was the custom back then for mothers uh, to make a seamless undergarment for their sons when they left home. And so we believe most likely Mary, as Jesus' mother, lovingly creates and and sews this this seamless undergarment that is now divided up in such a horrific way. The executioners got to keep the clothing of those that they crucified, and so now uh, they cast lots for this seamless garment. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Rick Renner writes, Jesus' totally naked body was flaunted in humiliation before a watching world His flesh was ripped to shreds. His body was bruised from head to toe. He had to heave his body upward for every breath he breathed, and his nervous system sent constant signals of excruciating pain to his brain. Blood drenched Jesus' face and streamed from his hands, his feet, and from the countless cuts and gaping wounds the scourging had left upon his body. In reality, the cross of Jesus Christ was a disgusting, repulsive, Nauseating stomach turning sight, and he did that for you and for me. In those moments, he was thinking of your name, he was thinking of my name. Number seven, Jesus was thirsty. Verse 28 later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Because he had lost so much blood, he had excruciating, severe thirst. And it's amazing that over all the pain he was going through, his thirst was so strong that in spite of that pain, he was still aware of his thirst. And then number eight, Jesus gave up his spirit. Verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. As Jesus hung on the cross, it would have become more and more difficult to breathe. He would have to push up on his nail-pierced feet to exhale. His heart would beat faster and faster to circulate oxygen. The decreased oxygen would cause damage to tissues And capillaries would begin leaking watery fluid. Fluid would eventually build up around his lungs. But there in the midst of this terrible moment comes a cry of victory. One of the other Gospels makes it clear that Jesus shouted this word, tetelestai, tetelestai. It means it is finished, it stands finished, and it will always be finished. Tetelestai, it is finished. Tetelestai, it stands finished. Tetelestai, it will always be finished. Historians tell us that a servant would use this word when reporting to his or her master, meaning tetelestai, I have completed the work assigned to me. I've done the job you told me to do. And so Jesus looks up to his heavenly Father and says, Tetelestai, I have completed the work you, Father, have assigned to me. Perhaps the most meaningful sense of Tetelestai, um, historians tell us, was used by merchants or business people, meaning the debt is paid in full. Tetelestai, the price is paid. And so at that terrible moment of agony, Jesus was thinking of you. He was thinking of all of us 2,000 years later and that same day as well. He was thinking of the thief on the cross crucified next to him. He was thinking of you. He he had you in mind when he said, Tetelestai, the assignment I've been given is completed. Tetelestai, it is finished now And it will stand finished forever. Tetelestai. The debt is paid in full. Tetelestai. The price is paid. And as he cried that out, he was thinking of every one of us that would join him for eternity in heaven. And now Jesus gives up his spirit. It's absolutely his choice to die. It is not Pilate's choice. It is his choice. He was in complete control of this entire event. Jesus was sovereign on on the whole journey. Uh, Even after he dies, uh, John gives us this one additional detail, that he was speared. It says in verse 32, "...the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs." Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, here is a medical scientific detail that could only be given by an eyewitness like John. They drive a spear through his side. Uh, The sack around his heart has filled with water. And so when they spear and break that fluid around the lungs and around the heart, the water and blood together pour out making it clear that Jesus is now unquestionably, he's unquestionably dead. John writes, the man, meaning himself, who saw this has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies, and here's why he wrote all of this down, so that you also may believe. So that every person listening here, in Pomona, or Kalispell, or Marion, or Arco, or or the hundreds of you online in our country and different places around the world for this moment. So he wrote these details down as an eyewitness account so that you may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. Dr. Schreier writes, teaching the physiology of Christ's crucifixion is a constant reminder of the magnificent demonstration of God's love for humanity that was expressed that day on Calvary. This lesson enables me to participate in communion, the remembrance of a sacrifice with a grateful heart. I am struck every time with the stunning realization that as a flesh-and-blood human, Jesus felt every ounce of this execution. What greater love than this can a man have for his friends? John later on wrote, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Carl talked about the how to become a follower of Jesus that you see there in the upper left-hand corner of page 5. And I want to pray the prayer that follows that. And I don't believe that you're here by accident today. I don't believe that you're listening to this, um, you know, for podcast or later on or online right now or here today, I don't believe that this is by accident. Jesus, as he hung on the cross and said, it is finished, he was thinking of you and this moment where in this simple prayer, uh, admit our condition, believe that Jesus is the solution, and then we choose to turn from our old way of life, our sin, Repent, medine, you know, as, as, as Dr. Carl said, to turn and to turn towards God on our way to heaven instead of on our way to hell. Right now is your moment. This is the moment of decision. This is why he died. This is why he did it so that this invitation, the price would be paid in full so that we could offer this opportunity, this decision this choice could be made for everybody that followed him even 2,000 years ago in Pomona, California. Would you pray silently as I pray out loud? Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was, and he proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. Have you prayed that prayer? We've got some resources for you to help you in your walk with Jesus. And they're available at the Connect Center right out in the lobby. And in a few minutes after some worship, I'm going to have you, as you go out into the lobby, you'll see the Connect Center. And please, if you'd like to talk to somebody, there's somebody to talk to. But you know, if if you just want to grab the material, there's no pressure, no obligation. This is just a gift uh, from us to you that we'd like to give to you to help you in your walk with Jesus.